We've witnessed how climate change is disrupting weather patterns, leading to extreme weather events. Think of the wildfires that ripped through parts of California in the United States, in Australia, the Amazon, and Siberia just this year alone. Or what about those record number of named hurricanes and typhoons that have battered coastal areas from the Atlantic all the way to the Philippines? These disasters affect lives and livelihoods of people and wildlife alike. They also cause unpredictable water availability, exacerbating water scarcity and contaminating water supplies. When it comes to our health, rising global temperatures can lead to deadly pathogens in freshwater sources, leading to water scarcity. In other situations, scarce and valuable freshwater has played a role in conflicts as a target or a tool to weaken people, gain political and or military advantage, or use as a bargaining chip in negotiations. Because freshwater is a vital and scarce resource, we decided to take a closer look at it. Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. In this episode, we look at what climate change means for water security. My first guest is Scott Moore. Scott is a political scientist and he focuses on environmental sustainability, technology, and international relations. His first book, Subnational Hydropolitics Conflicts, Cooperation, and Institution Building in Shared River Basins looks at how climate change and other pressures affect the likelihood of conflict over water within countries. Scott is currently the director of the Penn Global China Program at the University of Pennsylvania in the U.S. He's also a Global Governance Future alumnus, and I was keen to hear what he had to say. Scott gave me an overview of what conflicts over resources are and when and why they flare up. So we go back to, um, to the mid-20th century, um, post-Second uh, World War, in the midst of the Cold War, and especially in the 1970s and 80s, um, the focus of kind of global conflict shifted to the Middle East. Um, and of course, a big component of that conflict were the major oil reserves that that region plays host to. Um, and you started getting a lot of people writing about um, oil and, and conflict. And that, that wasn't necessarily a new idea during the Second World War major objective of uh, the uh, uh, German advance into the so into, uh, 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 Soviet Union at the time. Uh, was to seize uh, oil fields, for example. So, and there, there was a lot of geopolitics around uh, uh, Iran, uh, around trying to uh, engage Iran at the time, the U.S., the origins of the U.S. alliance with Saudi Arabia, uh, found in the same time period, 1945, when FDR goes to visit Saudi, uh, Saudi Arabia. So it's not that this was necessarily new, but certainly in, the, uh, in the, the middle of the 20th century, especially after the energy crisis in the 1970s, you start to get this flurry of, writing and thinking about uh, how non-renewable natural resources like oil drive conflict. Cold War ends, uh, we kind of enter this new uh, uh, period that also happens to coincide with uh, a reinvigoration of attention on environmental issues uh, within the international community. In 1992, there's the, the uh, Rio uh, summit that, that really kind of tries to chart a, a big global framework for dealing with international environmental challenges, including climate change. It's amidst all of this that you start to get kind of an explosion of both academic uh, scholarship as well as policymaker attention on the idea that it might not just be 
non-renewable resources like oil, but also renewable uh, resources like water or fisheries or uh, timber that might play some role in uh, in driving conflict. And that particularly some of the the kind of low uh, low grade conflict that you saw explode after the end of the Cold War across uh, the developing world in particular might have something to do with uh, uh, contestation over uh, these renewable uh, resources. You flash forward to now and uh, a solid 30 years or so uh, of academic uh, research on that kind of topic because I, I think reached at least one area of consensus, which is that, that there is not uh, a direct relationship or, direct, or a direct pathway between non or between renewable resources like water uh, and conflict. That uh, and frankly, the the fact whether there really is much of a relationship is still uh, contested. But I think most people would agree that to the extent that such a relationship exists, it's pretty um, attenuated by uh, what are usually referred to as intervening variables. And a lot of those intervening variables are things like institutional capacity. So does a, does a particular country or a community or a region where conflict might take place uh, have uh, things like the rule of law? Do they have a functioning uh, government, a uh, functioning kind of system of political representation, things that might either increase or decrease the likelihood of conflict? Another thing that people give pay a lot of attention to um, is the level of uh, uh, socioeconomic deprivation or social marginalization. So where you have uh, dramatic inequality, where you have extreme poverty, where you, you know, particularly if you're talking about communities that are uh, pastoralists, uh, herders that might be very directly affected by a drought, for example, that might increase the probability of uh, something like uh, uh, water shortages to, uh, to lead to conflict. But suffice it to say, that the literature is pretty clear on the fact that there's no direct uh, kind of causal relationship between um, resource, uh, uh, not, uh, renewable resource availability um, and conflict. It's also worth, uh, and I'll, I'll stop soon, but it's also worth just kind of point, pointing out a couple of nuances there. One is what does conflict mean? Typically conflict, you sort of tend to think of it as a, as a hierarchy where at the top you have interstate warfare, you have you know sort of organized violence uh, between the armed forces of uh, of uh, multiple countries, then you sort of have more uh, uh, internecine conflict. You know things like civil war or uh, uh, kind of ethnic group violence, down into um, protests that may or may not involve violence, may or may not involve the use of kind of real weapons, and then down to like rhetorical and legal uh, conflict at the kind of lower end of the, uh, of the hierarchy. Uh, and I would say that uh, with water in particular, uh, the vast majority of conflict that you see is really clustered at, in the, the lower part of the hierarchy. So it's primarily uh, conflict that occurs in the form of legal disputes um, or kind of diplomatic rhetorical disputes uh, like you're seeing uh, currently play out in the Nile Basin, for example. Scott mentioned that there is no direct correlation between resources like water and conflict. And yet, there are cases when water is being weaponized. I asked Scott to give me some examples of weaponization of water and explain what the reasons are behind it. It's actually something that I've been really interested in my own uh, research and writing is the extent to which um, water in particular is a resource that's really susceptible to, uh, as you say, weaponization, or uh, I, I sometimes have characterized it as manipulation by, by politicians. Uh, and what I mean by that is that you know, just to be uh, a little bit uh, a little bit folksy about it, people get really worked up about their water. 
it's a very uh, kind of potent cause of uh, political mobilization. So of uh, people uh, gathering together to uh, to protest uh, or to vote, um, which is kind of where often the, po the politics uh, comes in when they think that they're uh, either being deprived of water uh, in terms of uh, quantity. So often you see this in uh, agriculture. So an example uh, in the U.S. that's been in the news a fair amount in recent years is a uh, long-running debate between uh, farmers in the uh, in California. Uh, that's an example of where uh, kind of conflict over water quantity can be politically weaponized um, or manipulated. Uh, another place where you often see it is uh, debate over water pricing. That tends to be more a concern uh, for urban communities and uh, in one of probably the most famous international example is a series of protests that unfolded in the late 90s in the Bolivian city of Cochabamba. Uh, and there you had uh, privatization of the city's uh, water supply utility. More or less overnight, they uh, dramatically increased water prices and, and led to these protests. Um, so you often see it also in terms of uh, kind of economic access to water. Um, you do also see it reasonably often with respect to water pollution and water quality uh, degradation. That's uh, something that has been uh, particularly notable in China, where you've seen a number of uh, protests over uh, water pollution. It's been said that access and control of water, or the securitization of water, can serve as a conflict multiplier. So where in the world are we seeing an increasing occurrence of conflict over water resource? I think India is probably the best example of uh, the type of conflict that we've been talking about so far, where basically every major uh, river basin in India uh, is the scene of, of at least one long-running dispute over water. And I think the interesting thing about a lot of those disputes is those actually those disputes originated uh, under the British Raj as more or less purely technical matters, where they were there was just a sort of uh, dispute between the colonial officials of the time over how much water one region uh, could divert for irrigation versus another. But over the last few decades, especially since the 1980s, uh, those those disputes have moved from kind of a, a technical uh, and hydrological arena into a very political one. So they, they will be significant issues in state level election contests, for example. And I think that's an interesting example of this kind of politicization, weaponization, manipulation uh, of water. And typically the dynamic there is uh, state politicians will argue that that the uh, either that the opposition party failed to protect that particular state from having its neighbor steal uh, water uh, or, again, depending on the part of partisan affiliations, uh, that the that the, the central government, that the union government uh, had effectively uh, preferenced uh, the other state over uh, over their own state. So it's a very much a kind of political uh, a political issue. Um, but I would say too, there's a sort of slightly different type of water conflict that we uh, see that takes place in um, some of the the poorest and most fragile uh, parts of the world, places like Darfur, uh, Somalia, a lot of the regions that were until recently uh, part of the Islamic State where water scarcity is both very severe. There are significant numbers of people who survive by, uh, through subsistence agriculture or, uh, or herding or other activities that are very susceptible to uh, drought and water shortage. And there you did see a lot of cases in which armed groups, uh, whether it be the Islamic State or, um, uh, or rebels in places like Darfur, uh, would seize uh, water supply infrastructure and use that as a way to effectively 
uh, hold communities hostage. So you do see that kind of dynamic uh, as well in some of the most water scarce and most kind of fragile uh, parts of the world. I wanted to take a step back and look at this issue of water security from a regional level. So I called Jasteep Randawa, who is a Global Governance Futures alumna. Jasteep is an international lawyer and a policy specialist currently working in the adaptation team at the United Nations Climate Change Agency. She has worked on a number of climate change and water security initiatives with international organizations and foundations. I mentioned to her that my research on this topic surprised me when I came across the water security issue between India and Pakistan. Now, these two rival nations have had multiple territorial disputes that sparked off two of three major Indo-Pakistani wars and are known to regularly exchange fire across the contested border known as the line of control. Yet, India and Pakistan are signatories to the Indus Waters Treaty, and this treaty has stood the test of time. So I had to ask her to tell me about this Indus Waters Treaty, a distribution treaty between India and Pakistan that was brokered by the World Bank. In order to appreciate how India and Pakistan has developed a common understanding on sharing the Indus waters. I think it is necessary to revisit the unifying vision of water security that made this treaty a reality. So when the Indian subcontinent was partitioned in 1947 between India and Pakistan, the international border that cuts right across the Indus system, Pakistan became the downstream riparian country. And the headwaters of two of its main irrigation canals were left on the Indian side of the border. However, in 1948, uh, when there was a stalemate between India and Pakistan on the Kashmir issue, India cut off the water from its side and uh, also claimed propriety rights over the over the rivers, and this rivers is the um, eastern rivers for India. And the sharing of water after this became an international issue, causing a serious conflict between the two countries. So what happened at this time was uh, that uh, David Leithenel, he's a former chairman of the Tennis Valley, uh, he went and sort of witnessed the conflict and the extreme stalemate between India and Pakistan. And very interestingly, he observed at that time that this is not a matter of the Kashmir plebiscite issue, but it is a matter of Pakistan feeling threatened uh, that it is going to be deprived of its nation state identity and that it becomes important uh, for the international community to rise up to this challenge so that Pakistan continues getting its share of water to maintain peace on the continent. And so, so basically on this concept, of survival of a nation um, and on both the sides India and Pakistan at that time uh, relied on the Indus water as they do today to meet all their irrigation needs and so this was the time when the World Bank decided to intervene and the World Bank basically convened the following messages to India and Pakistan that there was sufficient water in the Indus Valley to meet both the present and the future needs of India and Pakistan and that the water 
water resources of the Indus Basin should be developed cooperatively and used in an effective manner to promote the economic development of the Indus Basin as one unit. And that the negotiations on this issue should be more on a functional rather than a political plane. So um, India and Pakistan, given the Kashmir situation and given uh, the way the political identity was being threatened, uh, was ready and willing to come to the negotiation table. However, they were unwilling to accept development of the Indus water as one hydrological unit. So this was the time when the, when the World Bank basically had um, a replacement plan or an engineering plan carved out for India and Pakistan. And according to which, um, you know, the World Bank, and I think this is very important as things stand today with the Indus Water Treaty, it was recognized that there are huge salinity and water logging issues for Pakistan with the, with, with the eastern and the western rivers. But at the same time, if the irrigation needs are not met, then people, about 250 million people are going to be deprived of their food security and that the water issue, um, which is dependent on the melting of the glaciers from the Himalayas, is only going to become severe in the future. So basically, the plan was a compromise to ensure that Pakistan would be able to meet its water needs through the division of the eastern and the western rivers in a way that there would be canals linking water for uh, uh, for getting it to its side, for meeting irrigation needs, but at the same time also providing the remedial measures of, um, you know, flooding uh, uh, of the water during the high season being able to be stored uh, in reservoirs. And ultimately, the donor community came in to sort of provide the infrastructure to build the canals and the dams for the division of waters between India and Pakistan. And uh, there is evidence today to show that because of the way the deal was brokered and the political dynamics behind this, particularly regarding the political sovereignty of both the nations and at the same time wanting development, development that this deal was brokered. So in a sense, this is how the Indus Water Treaty came about. Um, the underlying, the underlying uh, assumption of the treaty is that the water is going to be shared equitably between India and Pakistan, and that this is going to be done in a cooperative and friendly spirit. Despite years of tensions and multiple cross-border conflicts between India and Pakistan, the Indus Water Treaty still stands. I asked Justeep, what makes this treaty so special and why neither India nor Pakistan walked away from it? Indus Water Treaty is an excellent example, um, and as a lawyer, I really want to sort of address this, of the procedure requirements uh, that establish the norms of transparency, due diligence, and a mechanism that is participative and independent to implement the substantive terms of the treaty. And so basically what this means is that the water treaty itself does not contain a pro provision for either party to unilaterally suspend or terminate the contents of the treaty. And in as much as it, 
India has in the past and uh, recently, uh, even last year during the attacks that happened, uh, has threatened to withdraw and, and to divert more water from the eastern part. It's not going to happen. And there are a number of reasons for it. Um, I, I think the first reason is that um, India does have very large hydropower demands. And, you know, recently the government of India has said that it wants to generate a capacity of over 70,000 megawatt um, of hydroelectric power by 2030, which basically means that whatever provisions are provided in the treaty in terms of uh, storing water, in terms of diverting water and the amount of hydroelectric uh, uh, dams it can build, these are very important for India to sort of meet its growing energy needs in the future and even at present. But over that, I think there are other aspects which are very important. And these are the multiple contexts in which the Indus Water Treaty, uh, you know, is embedded. The first is the strategic implication, right? Like from an Indian perspective, if you're going to withdraw from the Indus Water Treaty, there are major threats to the stability in the region because Beijing is going to step in and you know we are already seeing it with construction of dams on the rivers originating from the Tibetan plateau which is causing unease in New Delhi. So that's the first strategic implication that you don't want to sort of you know go in with the human humanitarian consequences towards already a very water stressed country which is Pakistan and with Beijing's intervention. The second aspect is the geopolitical aspect. Now Indus Water Treaty was facilitated by the World Bank, but it was the United States that had midwifed it. So the endurance of the, the Water Treaty through wars and all the other conflicts which we've seen between Pakistan and India and having survived it is the United States basically sees this as the only success factor that it has had in the region. And so from the perspective of United States, it wants to do everything to keep the Indus Water Treaty intact. The third aspect is the diplomatic aspect. Now, India doesn't want to come across as a bully in the region by threatening to withdraw from a water treaty, given that it wants to be seen as a rising power in the region. So it doesn't really make sense for India to sort of cut off its perception as a responsible rising power in the region. And finally, I think it's the practical aspect, because the prerequisite for cutting of water supply of such a large measure is the capacity capacity to store it, right, so that it does not cause damage to the Indian territory and property. But at present, the infrastructure is really insufficient to meet this requirement. China has been involved in dam constructions in Tibet. I asked Jasdeep what this means for the India-Pakistan relationship. I think uh, this is a cause of concern and there are right reasons for the cause of concerns, um, but I, I, I want to elaborate why. And it might not be uh, because of the water, but rather it might be because of how China is consolidating power. So first of all, climate change is threatening the Tibetan pla plateau water resources in more than one way. Uh, you know, more rainfall in the medium term, but there are going to be quicker glacial melts and less water flow in the future. And, um, you know, the, the recent IPCC assessment suggests that even with a drastic reduction in carbon emissions, uh, which would be done through the hydropower projects of China um, and also of India, um, Pakistan, 
one third of these Himalayan glaciers are doomed to melt by the end of the century. And without a reduction in emissions, it, it's going to grow to two thirds. So the livelihoods of well over a billion people are directly at risk from this. Now, as we know, um, the, the upstream of the river is on China-controlled territory. And I think this is what has been causing in India and Bangladesh worry that China's major interventions over the waterways uh, is going to affect the ecosystems as well as the river flow downstreams. But what we need to remember is that um, this is the, the, the cause for this is, is not the, the water flow because is um, the one river which has its main headway in the Chinese territory is the Brahmaputra. But the amount of water which comes uh, from the Brahmaputra within our territory is really high. It's really you know, impacts us, impacts India very minimally with what the Chinese do upstream. And this is a fact. But what, what's happening is that the speculation uh, regarding not sharing the data, and there is an agreement between India and China to share the data, um, you know, during the monsoon season to prevent flooding um, in India. And uh, because there is so much of mistrust between India and China with the Ladakh crisis that is going on, and also because China has been very boldly, um, you know, making conquests um, uh, in territories across the region, that that uh, there is lack of communication between the two countries. And so, and I think so. it's, it's very, very important to, for us to realize that um, in as much as the um, hydropower projects are significantly uh, are significantly harmful to the ecological needs. Um, I think the bigger question over here is that given where India and China stand in its diplomatic relations, can China do more more good? It can definitely not do any harm in terms of being the upper riparian state over here. But can it do more good by sort of opening access to Tibet by managing its resources better and also by sharing the data better. India, China, and Pakistan are already among the world's most populous countries. My quick search online tells me that the three countries combined are home to 2.9 billion people, and this number is expected to grow in the future. I asked Jasdeep if the population growth could increase the prevalence of water scarcity in the region and if it could lead to more clashes and violence. Water wars is definitely going to be one of the major fallouts of the water security situation that we are seeing today. Uh, now, uh, the Himalayan cryposphere that supplies water, you know, to India, China, Nepal, and Pakistan is projected to, to decrease considerably by, uh, you know, the end of this century. And uh, in fact, it's already been predicted through the IPCC, the scientific assessment assessment on climate change by 2060, these rivers are to dry up. 
right? And this basically means that reduced flow will lead to energy as well as water shutters. And uh, now we have more than 400 dams under construction or planning for the coming decade in India, Nepal, Bhutan, Pakistan, and many more, as we've already discussed, is going to be built um, across the Chinese border in Tibet. Now, if the plans come to fruition, South Asia region is going to be amongst the most heavily dammed regions in the world. These schemes are going to aggravate both the international tensions and also carry very grave ecological risks, which respect no borders. And um, so given this, um, and I really want to sort of address the scientific assessment to show the threat of the water war um, and also the context of the political situation we've discussed today. And it is that in India, the snow and glacier runoff to at least seven of its major hydropower plants have decreased over the last seven decades between 1950 and 2017. And basically, this means that disasters from these water outbursts and heavy rains are going to affect um, all the communities um, in India, Nepal and China. And, you know, Pakistan, as we know, is one of the most water stressed region. Um, Bangladesh has the same concerns which India has with China's building of dams that it, the negative effect of India's hydrological engineering upstream is going to impact its community. So I think I would say that conflict over water is extremely linked up with politics at every level from the local to the regional. And, you know, the suspect of water war is a blunt tool with which we can capture the unpredictability of struggles over water. And so I think I would say that the existential importance of water uh, might diffuse the conflict in as much as the competing attempts to control water will deepen it. And the reason I make this statement is because I think every country uh, would want to, and it goes back to what we were discussing before, this is a matter of nation state. It is the concept of a country being able to provide for its people. And each country wants to provide for its people. But at the same time, if water wars were to happen, it's also going to create the kind of instability in the region which no country would want to you know take upon itself the burden upon itself just because of the uh, relations it has not only with its neighbors but with other countries but 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 this is a possibility if we are not able to come to extremely practical solutions on meeting the adaptation and the mitigation needs of the communities which are the most vulnerable to water scarcity and climate change issues. Now, you probably already know that water scarcity is a threat that is not exclusive to any one particular region. To take a closer look at this issue, I called Susanna Schmeyer. Susanna is an associate professor of water law and diplomacy at IHE Delft in the Netherlands. Among other issues, her expertise is on the legal and institutional dimensions of water resource management at the national, subnational, and transboundary levels. Susanna also looks at the linkages between water insecurity and conflict and related entry points for water-based cooperation processes. I began our conversation by asking Susanna to give me an overview of the places in the world which are already facing water scarcity. 
what I think we need to distinguish here first, though, is are we talking water scarcity in, in absolute terms, so more in, in hydrological terms, or are we talking water scarcity in, in economic terms? So there is water, but it can't be used because there's a lack of infrastructure or lack of technology to actually access these water resources and use them for human needs, for economic activities. Or are we talking water stress in the sense of the ratio of available water resources? and withdrawal of these water resources, where water stress would then be a situation where more is withdrawn than is actually um, available in a, in a renewable way in surface and groundwater. Um, these are minor differences, but in most cases we see both. There are regions where we see absolute scarcity, thinking about the Middle East, uh, countries such as Qatar, Oman, Libya, Jordan, Palestine, and so on. Um, but we're also seeing regions where there is, from a pure hydrological perspective, potentially enough water, but the the use of the water is so high and often also so inefficient that populations nonetheless run into, into issues with regards to water supply. For example, if water is being used largely for irrigation, which we see in a lot of countries where water use, countries such as Iran, for example, where water use is up to 90% for agriculture out of the overall water use and nearly half actually lost in agriculture because it evaporates, because irrigation systems are inefficient. Then we're also seeing sort of man-made water scarcity, we, we could call it. But what's also interesting to note is that the situation that we have now is actually only worsening. So if we look at a combination of factors such as climate change, population growth, changing consumption patterns, and so on, we know that the, the share of the population around the world that will be affected by water scarcity is only rising. So there are estimates that in five years only, so by 2025, about two-thirds of the world's population will face water shortages, at least for parts of the year. And regions where water is still relatively abundant might also increasingly be affected by water scarcity. So here we can think of, of Central Africa or East Asia. So these regions are being added to the regions that are already facing water scarcity. Susanna differentiated between water scarcity in absolute terms and in economic terms. I was curious to know which one is she most worried about looking forward and what she would advise policymakers to focus on. I think really one needs to address those in an interconnected way. So because very often also the reason the reasons are combined. So there is water scarcity in, in absolute terms already, but then the water that is still available is being used in such a way that it's uh, that is not efficient, that a lot is lost. So that adds to that water scarcity. So we could potentially alleviate the situation to some extent if we were to use our water resources in a wiser way, grow very water intensive crops, maybe not in the regions that are the most affected by water scarcity, invest in efficient irrigation infrastructures, reuse wastewater. I mean, that's that's one topic. For example, most countries, even the countries that are facing water scarcity already, are not really reusing their wastewater in, in any efficient way. But it could be done. If you look at Israel, 85% of the wastewater is being reused in agriculture. That's that's really an outstanding example that doesn't find any comparison anywhere else. So it has. we really have to address both sides. We can't do so much about the absolute scarcity, except for addressing climate change and, and uh, sticking to the 1.5 degree goal. But we can do a lot of things about the, the relative dimension, so to say. What are the challenges of reusing water? I mean, why aren't more countries doing that? 
It's not because it's technologically so difficult. I think it relates more to technical capacities, financial capacities. I mean, a lot of the countries that are facing water scarcity challenges and all the social and political consequences that come with it do not have the technical capacity, do not have the financial means to invest in such plans uh, for, for treatment of wastewater and for reuse. But I think also there have been warning signs, obviously, there have been conflicts around water, there have been protests, but for many governments, the situation is maybe not dire enough yet to make these investments, because these investments in water infrastructure, of course, always compete with all sorts of other government investment needs, um, political priorities, and so on. So that, I think, is really um, a key concern. We need to prepare for that future now. But water scarcity, water challenges, also conflicts around water are something that typically happens a bit in the background. It's usually overshadowed by more immediate concerns, political concerns, things that are on the on the respective national or international agendas. And then water always falls a bit off the to-do list, we could say, until things indeed turn so bad that something needs to be done. But then we run into a challenge that it needs some years to prepare water treatment plants, uh, desalination plants, and so on. Water scarcity can cause both interstate and intrastate conflicts and tensions. I asked Susanna to give me some examples of conflicts over water on a national or subnational level. Both policymakers, journalists, but also researchers have for a long time talked about international interstate conflict over water, but have overlooked a bit the, the dynamics at the national and subnational level. But just to give you two examples, let me start with Mali, a country that has been a lot in the news lately um, because of its instability and the security challenges it faces. And among the many, many factors that have been driving um, instability in the country, one is definitely a water issue in the inner Niger Delta. That is a part of the Niger River. The Niger River is a transboundary river and it flows into Mali, coming from Guinea, forms a big delta there and then continues further downstream until it empties into the ocean in Nigeria. And in that area of the inner Niger Delta, we have different groups. We have farmers, we have herders and we have fishermen who compete over water and they increasingly compete over water because the time that the delta is flooded is increasingly becoming shorter because of climate change, but also because of the development of big irrigation schemes and dams in upstream neighboring countries. So what happens is that the old regimes that existed for regulating when do the farmers farm, when do the herders come in with their cattle are not working anymore. So for example, farmers uh, still produce crops, haven't harvested them yet, but the herders come in with their cattle to feed them and to, to have them drink, already destroying the crops. And that has left, led to um, significant conflicts between these groups, also because these different groups are also tied to different ethnic backgrounds. So the farmers come from a different ethnic background than the, the herders, for example. And this has been a big factor in destabilizing the entire region. It has deprived people of their livelihoods. It has led people to migrate to the cities, further destabilizing the cities, undermining government legitimacy. And last but not least, it has also led to people joining terrorist groups, illicit groups, Criminal groups, the, the difference is not always that clear, simply because they were deprived of livelihoods and because they were disappointed in the ability of the government to come up with a new regulation that would allow everyone to benefit from the water. So if we think of a link between water and conflict or water and violence or water and protest, there's tons of intervening factors in between that are different in every place at every time. So this is what we're looking at in the Water Peace and Security Program. We're trying to determine these factors and develop a system which would help us to better understand them and potentially even, even forecast these conflicts. 
I wanted to bring our conversation to a very local level and look what water means, and especially water scarcity means, for local populations, including farmers, who depend on water to supply you and I the stuff we put on our table. So what does water scarcity mean for them, and how does it affect people's livelihoods and everyday reality? Water is, is the basis for everything. It's a basis for, for human needs. So it's about access to water for drinking, for cooking. It's also about safe sanitation and a factor that's often overlooked because unsafe sanitation tends then to contaminate local water resources, depriving even more people of even more water that they could otherwise use that's there but contaminated. It also relates a lot to food security. That is a very important link between water and, and conflict or instability that water is not there or not at a sufficient quality to actually irrigate crops. And in most parts of the world, irrigation is needed to grow crops. So that means that um, farmers, farmer families can, can't produce the food that they need. It means that they might have to walk very far to fetch water, which often and overproportionately affects women and girls, because they are the ones who tend to fetch water. And the further they have to walk, the less time they have either for their own economic activities or for girls to go to school. So this has long-term societal impacts as well. So it is affecting families at their very basic survival, which also explains why at some point they have to turn to alternatives. And if they don't have the means, for example, to invest in, in different crops, to change the crops that they grow, because maybe they also don't receive government support for that, or if they don't have the means to move to the city and indeed find a job there that that provides sufficient financial means for their families. The only option is often to join violent groups. And what is interesting to observe, for example, in the Lake Chad region is that Boko Haram there has actually in some regions been engaging in water management. So there was a, a governance gap that was left by the state, the state not being able to address these conflicts, not being able to, to help farmers um, with alternative livelihoods or regulate the water use between the different groups. And Boko Haram has stepped in and has, uh, in parts of the region, actually managed water resources based on, on Sharia law. And we don't have to go into the details what that means, but it has set up a certain stable system for water management that is also, of course, legitimizing the role of these otherwise not very legitimate groups. I was curious to hear Susanna's take on fair water distribution. If water is so important, why is it so difficult for citizens of the same country to agree on an equitable share of water? Even if we leave ethnic groups and representation of those in central governments and so on aside, I think the, the challenge is that because water is of such immediate importance for our survival, drinking, um, food, and so on, it is difficult to come to, to an agreement what equitable means. Everyone will have a different understanding of equitable. I think I mean, we have international consensus that the human right to water should always come first. So the supply of drinking water definitely takes precedent over other uses. But after that, I think the question whether it is equitable and fair to give a certain share to agriculture that might be using it inefficiently or to give a certain share to an industry that only benefits a certain part of the country is is such a political question and it's tied to so many issues beyond water. It's tied to, as I said, sectoral interests. It's tied to political interests. And I think that's another important factor. It is being securitized, not only at the international, but also at the national level, so quickly. People or groups, rightly so in many cases, claiming that their absolute survival depends on it, just makes it um, an issue that is very difficult to discuss. 
especially because it is in most cases perceived zero-sum game. So what what you get, I don't get. Therefore, I'm not going to allow that you get more of it. And I think that blocks the the road a bit to thinking about win-win solutions, thinking about what, for example, is described in the water energy food security nexus, thinking about how water resources could be managed more in a more integrated manner, how they can be used more efficiently by, for example, um, using reservoirs that are being built for hydropower, also for irrigation, but maybe also for fish farming, providing alternative food resources maybe to the farmers that can't have as many cattle anymore as they used to have and things like that. But that is something that if one is immediately affected or thinks or perceives that one is affected by water scarcity, people usually don't open their eyes for these uh, win-win solutions. Um, solutions, understandably. I asked Susanna if there is a place or region she can point to where the danger of water scarcity is very serious, but does not get enough global attention. I think there's quite a few. I mean, attention has really been on the Middle East and North Africa in the past years, because that is a region that's facing severe water crisis, but also for for other reasons that brought political attention to it. Um, We've looked a bit at Southern Africa with um, day zero in Cape Town, but I think not a lot of attention has been paid to other parts of Southern Africa. If we look at Botswana, for example, which in 2015 was affected by a really heavy drought that left the, for example, the reservoir that feeds the capital, Gaborona, at 3% of its normal filling level and has really put a lot of stress on the capital, but also on the tourism industry, the mining industry that is the only source of income for the country. So Namibia, Botswana, Zimbabwe, also has this year been been hit by a number of water-related problems and we're not paying a lot of attention to it. Similarly, I think um, the Horn of Africa, which has been on the media quite a bit, but for other regions, reasons, I think um, we shouldn't be overlooking issues relating to water scarcity, for example, in the border area between um, Ethiopia and Somalia on the Juba Shibela River, where populations on both sides um, of the border are being heavily affected. I think we're also not talking about a lot about places in Latin America, Chile, but also more towards Central America and also Asia. I think the perception is most often that Asia is a rather water-rich area, which it is uh, in many in many regions. But I think thinking Central Asia, thinking also places in, in Southeastern Asia, Thailand, there are areas in Thailand that have been hit by droughts in the past years, not to an extent yet that we see in the Middle East. But if we look at the dependence of the population there and the population growth, that is also definitely an area to keep an eye on. And obviously, India, Pakistan, everything that depends on the rivers coming from the Himalayas. Susanna mentioned South Africa and the water crisis in Cape Town. Our next guest is Michelle Toxopeos, a current GGF 2035 fellow from South Africa. Michelle is a legal researcher at the Helen Sussman Foundation, a non-governmental organization that promotes constitutional democracy in South Africa. Michelle is currently leading a research project on water management in South Africa with a particular focus on the role of governance in managing climate-related impacts on water security. Michelle shared her take on how and why the crisis in Cape Town started. I think there were various drivers that led to Cape Town's water um, crisis. There's, there, for, for me, there's four clear drivers. The first is obviously the climate-related driver, which, um, you know, leading up to 2014, we had a good rainfall. 2015, we had less. So 2016, 2017 saw, you know, the actual real effects 
become visible to the communities. So we had this strong rainfall and then obviously um, a lot less. So, And, you know, there's various debates about whether climate-related events, this was a climate-related event. But I've read a few things that say, I, I mean, there's debates around this, but I think it's clear that it made it three times more likely that that's the statistic going around. So there's obviously a clear climate change effect that occurred. But I think related to that and related strongly to that is the fact that from a managerial perspective, there was some poor management decisions that were made prior to to the crisis, particularly because of the high rainfall that we had beforehand. So we had beautiful rain. We have six dams in, in, in Cape Town that, that kind of feed the water schemes in Cape Town. And we have various models to determine, you know, how much should we um, build more infrastructure? Should we, uh, what should we do? Should we look to desalinization? And, and because of those good years of good rainfall, I think the decision makers more, were more reluctant to you know, spend billions of rands on infrastructure that at that time didn't seem necessary because the predictions, which were incorrect, would say that we only needed to start looking at it in, you know, 2019, 2020, up to 2022. And, and that those dry spells came earlier than expected and it was severe dry spells. So, you know, the six dams that feed Cape Town are only, only managed to store two years of water supply. So, you know, when, when rainfall started to deplete in 2015 already, the dams fell to 71% from, seven, from 97% in the previous year. And it just gradually started falling um, more and more so. So, um, yeah, when buildings stalled, they decided... In, in the late 2000s not to build more or as much infrastructure to feed the city of Cape Town. What was the initial response from the government and did the local population comply with the rules? The initial steps that that government took was obviously to place restrictions in place, put restrictions in place. And um, they were obviously light at first. So it was, I think, reduction of water usage initially, and they were not well complied with. Consumer behavior, particularly in well-off areas, was not great. And so more stringent restrictions had to be put in place. So, so like, just to give you an example of consumption in general, before the drought, it's 200 liters per person per day on, on average. And that had to be reduced to 50 liters per, pers- per person per day. And the consumer behavior, I think you need to also look in from the lens of the deep inequality that exists within the city of Cape Town. Um, so on one scale, you have the effluent areas, which use vast amounts of water. And then on the other side, you have people who, who use 25 liters or less so they weren't even reaching the, you know, the restriction rate at that time. So there's deep inequalities uh, and the, the effluent areas then had to radically reduce their, their usage, especially during the, the emergency period when day zero was, you know, a thing 
when, when the term was coined, essentially. But after that, like post-drought, we've seen, we've seen the behavior slowly but surely. I mean, there are, there are measures that have been put in place, but as the emergency has lightened and other things have come to the forefront, you know, like COVID, in the back of your mind, consumer behavior then changes and, and reverts back to what it was. So we're seeing that the city of Cape Town is really good with their strategies. They've put strategies in place. Um, they've put plans in place. But consumer behavior is really something that they need to focus on. During the emergency process, the city of Cape Town put something on their website showing kind of an engagement app to, for consumers to participate in the decision makings and the, the decision making and the planning of how to go about kind of dealing with this emergency situation. And we received about 55,000 responses, whereas recently they've put up a new kind of participatory um, platform, if you, if you want to call it that, and they've only received about 200 responses. What is the situation like in Cape Town today? The situation is much better. Um, they've had some good rainy seasons. And I think this has sparked some action um, for the city of Cape Town itself to get its strategies in place, its um, planning at a much higher level, particularly focusing on the water situation. So, yeah, are you seeing, uh, you know, review, reviewing their policies before and after um, the crisis has been interesting because you can really see a step in the right direction towards a water-sensitive city. In South Africa, they're po- probably the, the city that has the best policies in place at the moment. They're the only city in South Africa that's, that's really focusing on, not that the other cities aren't, but they have a dedicated water strategy that focuses on long-term and short-term planning. For, for the city and the water supply there. They also, very interestingly, are well, their climate-related policies have also developed um, since the, the crisis to, to really focus on water itself. Um, they have a dedicated um, water sensitivity policy that's looking into ways in which they can you know, develop and create and establish this water-sensitive city in, in South Africa. I think it is a step in the right direction for, for the w- water supply in, in the city um, more generally. I do think that it still needs to take a lot, a lot more consideration needs to be given to how that looks like for the less developed areas as well given the stark inequalities and the structural inequalities that still exist in Cape Town. Michelle said the situation in Cape Town has improved and the government seems to be taking steps in the right direction. That made me wonder, are there other positive examples, particularly where local communities chose cooperation instead of conflict over access to water? So I went back to Scott and this is his take on it. So I think maybe the the most dramatic uh, example of that is the Colorado uh, basin in in the U.S., where for 60 or so years, really from the early from the the 1930s uh, or so into the 90s, uh, there was more or less constant legal dispute and uh, political 
bickering between their seven U.S. states that share the Colorado Basin, in addition to, uh, I believe, two Mexican states uh, that are kind of part of the of the greater Colorado Basin. It was more or less constant bickering for those 60 years. But starting in the 1990s, uh, the the states started to band together both at the state level, but I think even more importantly, at the sub-state level, at the level of uh, environmental organizations and water user associations and the sort of groups that are most directly touched by by allocations of water. And they uh, managed to, over a period of, uh, of really three de- 30 years, three, three decades uh, since the, the 90s, uh, of agreeing to um, reduce their water uh, use in proportion to the long to long term climactic shifts that we're seeing in the Colorado Basin that are reducing overall water availability. And as a, as a quick but interesting side note, there's a treaty that governs, uh, well, it's a compact, it's just sort of an interstate equivalent of a treaty that uh, uh, apportions the waters of the Colorado between the different uh, basin states. There's also a separate U.S.-Mexico treaty that, uh, uh, alloc- that uh, regulates flow from the U.S. into Mexico. But both of the, all of these agreements were based on what we now think from climactic modeling and, and research into things like uh, tree rings and things like that uh, seems to be an unusually wet period in the history of the Colorado River Basin. And with climate change, we expect uh, that that will not be the case again, at least in the foreseeable future. So you kind of have a legal uh, and policy framework um, that's based on an unrealistic uh, level of water availability. And so what you've seen over the last 30 years is essentially cooperation between these local groups to try to uh, eliminate that gap. And they've been pretty successful. It's uh, resulted in something called the Drought Contingency Plan, uh, uh, which was uh, finally kind of passed um, last year, 2019. Um, and it's really a remarkable example of agreement and cooperation between literally thousands of these water user groups, uh, environmental uh, organizations, uh, local water utilities, all of which agreed to uh, a framework and a formula for reducing their water use uh, in times of drought. And I think if you were to sort of boil down how that process took place, it has two uh, key ingredients, one of which was the involvement of civil society groups, which I think helped to kind of balance out the political conflict that you saw between, you know, farmers and urban dwellers. And then also you had uh, national leadership. And one thing maybe I'll just offer as a concluding observation, it gets back to our earlier discussion about the sort of difficult politics of water. Uh, National political leaders are often very hesitant to become involved in uh, water conflicts within their countries, typically because it does pit one region uh, against another in some respect. So there's typically no obvious political payoff for becoming involved. But when political leaders do uh, become involved, uh, they often have very positive results. In the case of the Colorado, it was actually more secretaries of the interior, uh, rather, which is, is the sort of natural resource minister position in the U.S., rather than the president per se. But they, of course, act uh, in the name uh, of the president. So that's what I would say. And by the way, final point on that, I, I would really credit that process of federal leadership having started with uh, a guy named Bruce Babbitt, who was uh, Interior Secretary in the Clinton administration. And I think the reason that he took this approach and was so interested in it is that he had previously been governor of Arizona and was therefore uh, intimately familiar with the Colorado River uh, dispute.
Over the last three decades, we've seen water resources depleting around the world. Climate change is causing erratic rainfall, melting ice caps, and creating higher temperatures leading to drought, flooding, and instability. And when a shared resource such as water is becoming more and more valuable, it becomes even more susceptible to becoming a driver of violence, conflict, even war. Our hope is for all countries to see climate change as an emergency for the entire planet and to find ways to cooperate on this issue. After all, we all need water to survive, no matter who and where we are. You've been listening to the Global Futures Podcast with me, Joel Sandu. Our guests today in this episode were Scott Moore, Jasdeep Randawa, Susanna Shmaya, and Michelle Toxopeos. This episode was produced by Sonia Sugarbova from the Global Public Policy Institute. If you like what you heard, you can find more podcasts, opinion pieces, and written interviews on ggfutures.net forward slash analysis. For now, we wish you all a peaceful and healthy holiday season. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.